Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Hi again, everyone. I'm Aaron Noon, and welcome back to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, this week, we sit down with a true legend of Australian motorsport, Larry Perkins. In the second part of our chat, we ask him your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions. We talk about his decision to start his own touring car team, his three Bathurst 1000 wins under his own banner, the Castrol Cougars all-female program, and the VH Luke Top 10 Shootout, where Larry comes out with a few ripping answers. So here we go, buckle up, time to start. Part two of Larry Perkins on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. You talked about the the era that you were in Europe and you saw some of the teams and the way they were run and the way the mechanics did things that wasn't up to the, the level that you would have expected and, and wanted and ultimately put into play yourself. At what Was it back then that you felt because of that one day I'm going to run my own show as a proper race team in Australia or did that come later where you'd done your time with Brock that finish, you had no, a little bit of it. Where did you decide, I'm going to go and do my No, that came very much later. It wasn't, it was around that 80, 81, 82 period uh, when I was back from Europe, not sure what I wanted to do, that Brocky rang me up to say, look, would I drive with him at Bathurst in 82? Oh, I said, Peter, look, I'm not that fussed about driving. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so the biggest race team in the country rings yeah. you up and offers you basically a seat that will guarantee you to win Bathurst nearly. Well, well that's where and I... And you didn't want to do it. Well, that's where I placed the touring car category of Australia on the world stage. It was just not my focus. It was as simple as that. Um, I said to Brocky, look, you know, and I went down to the workshop and had a look around. I said, Jesus, Brocky, it's, it's a real shit fight, your workshop. It was dirty and scruffy and... Shocking! I said, "Look, I, you know, if you want me to run the workshop, I'll do that. And all right, if you want me to co-drive at Sandown, all right, I'll do that." But it was not a big desire of mine, and uh, and and so that's how we how we started, and that's why we got on again because I weren't uh, uh, constantly saying to Peter, "Give me a drive, give me a drive." I just weren't that interested in it because I was still, uh, you know wounded from not uh getting into formula one which was the you know that was that was the goal mm. and uh um and i had a, we had a good time there. it was very good peter just let left me alone to do my preparation he let me hire and fire i i didn't have any influence uh or or whatever on the commercial side of his road business um or, or getting his sponsors ring, he he would give me a budget. Said, "Look, we've got this signed up and this signed up. That's the amount of money. Can you run a car on that?" And every all the three years I was there, I gave him a, a check back. Uh, he made a profit each year that I was running it, and uh, and we got on well. So it was then I got my own team, and it was that, as a result of being in Brock's team for those three and a half years that I saw how bad the whole touring car industries was in my eyes where newcomers couldn't access it and that's really slowly got my attention to what i would call very corrupt behavior of 
the whole system. I mean, I look at the other teams that were always, uh, and focusing on the Holden teams, uh, you know, privateers, they couldn't get the right bits and, you know, Holden would look after, you know, Rocky, uh, and that's their right, that's up to them. But I wanted the CAMs, the rule makers, to make a much more even playing field. And that's why when I started uh, my own team, I was determined, because I knew everything, how it all worked. And uh, I was determined to expose all that and get the rules to start certain, uh, you know, all the participants, not just one or two of them. And um, uh, I, I, we got to around, um, it might have been 88, uh, I called the very first meeting for the tour, what's called today for our supercars. So I came back, I went to New Zealand, <clears throat> did the Wellington thing, and the New Zealand guy over there, he said to me, me after we had a, we had a barn meeting over there of entrance in front of the New Zealand guy called the shots. And uh, I, he said, can't you guys get the bloody together so I don't have to make 28 phone calls to Australia to see if you're going to come over? And um, I, I got uh, called a meeting. Uh, Tony Noski was very much, uh, if you like, with me on it. And um, the meeting was down at the Park Royal. It's just a stop at the Grand Prix track here. And that was the start of what is today V8 Supercars. Because that became the entrance group, Correct. which became Tiger and Tiger, of course, a big part of it. It was along the lines, I said to the meeting guys, and I remember Dick Johnson walked in, uh, and I'd known Dick obviously well. Dick said, well, this will be a waste of fucking time. And I said, well, Dick, if that's the case, we'll F off. But he didn't, and he stayed. You know? So we all weren't shy about having a few words with each other. And uh, uh, but. Yeah, when I saw that the Amaru uh, meeting would pay, uh, uh, you know, Brock ten grand to go there, and maybe Dick Johnson ten grand, and all the rest of the idiots went for nothing. I said, guys, this is this is all wrong. I mean, you know, we're all going broke or uh, trying to make, you know, one little part of the grid successful. So that that started to get their attention, but it took years to uh, slowly turn that around and. Um, and we re- and then we you know, as you mentioned Teague, we tried to run it ourselves. Uh, I sat with Alan Moffat. Uh, he was chairman of our group for three or four years, and I was treasurer. We had many, many meetings with team owners, and sometimes they were shouting matches, sometimes they weren't. Uh, you know, we were through turbulent times. Don't forget trying to juggle the the competitiveness of, of the uh, Nissan, the four-wheel drive Nissan. Your favourite car, your favourite uh, car. Uh, that's why I mentioned cams. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, certainly looking after some and not the others, yeah. Your team punched out so many cars, not just for yourself, but for, for customers and engines and bits and pieces and like. Was it that customer approach? I mean, you, that really connects to what you are talking about before, that giving people the opportunity to get the gear that they couldn't get otherwise. Did that... If you hadn't done that part of your business, would your race team have still been able to go, or was that helping fund the race team? Oh, it, it, no, it totally funded the race team. Uh, in most of those years, sponsorship was about thirty uh, percent of my income, and uh, there's customer sales, and hence profit was seventy percent of my income. So it was a, a massively crucial that I could sell cars, make a profit, you know, make two new cars for customers and the third one was yours for free mm. uh, type of thing. And um, 
and all the guys, I had great guys working for me, Neil Burns for many years, he, he worked for me, uh, he worked for uh, the Holden Dealer team before me, um, Marty Watt, and, uh, lots of guys, uh, you know, worked for me, uh, Graham Brown, uh, uh, that was in the Brock, uh, when we went to Brock's um, contract in 91, but um, yeah, I've had a lot of good people come through my workshop doors, but they've all contributed enormously to make you know, our engines and chassis successful. Jack's done a great job in the last, well, not just the last few years, but for some time. And he and I have always talked about the histories of the old cars and what's where. Your team punched out 50 cars and I think a couple of hundred engines, and not just for touring cars, but for... Oscars on the Thunderdome, Formula Holden open wheeler V6 engines, the odd road engine or two, proddy engines. It's a bit of everything going on down at that place in Moorabbin, wasn't there? I think it was 48 race cars we made uh, and then 199 engines. And the 199 is the V8 engine. Uh, every time the, they brought a category in called Formula Holden, mm. and I think uh, every year that was run. Uh, our, we did most of the engines for the most of the teams, and um, um, I had a, a section of the engine job. But Rodney Frith, he ran that. He he did a great job. Never had a failure on the track, and we won the championship every year going. Yeah. Speaking of wins, it wouldn't be a podcast with LP without talking about Bathurst wins. 93, we kind of covered with that car, which, by the way, was my first Bathurst. So I was there that day. Mm-hmm. I was there in 95, but I was at the other end of the track. I was at the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. When you're a 15-year-old kid, that's certainly an adventure and a half when you're camping up there and saw things that I probably can't unsee now. Because that's the one that everyone talks about, the last of first. 97 gets a little bit forgotten because of those two, which was the year that you and Russell won the race and basically hammered the rest of them into submission. It's like trying to pick your favourite kid to pick your favourite Bathurst win, but they all have their own identities. They've all got their own nuances and, and differences. What's the thing that stands out, perhaps for that last one, that, that 97 one, which was the Primus 1000 classic with Russell? Well, as you say, it's it's hard to pick. Look, when you got the luxury to pick <laughs> it's a good, six, it's six a good, wins... Well, the first three uh, you weren't going to have because you didn't want to drive for well, prop, you right. just want to run the workshop. So you can quickly narrow it down. Well, the wins under my own uh, banner clearly outweigh the wins with the HDT, and that's no disrespect to that. But, um, you know, your first win when you're on pole with your own Holden engine and everyone else has got a Chev, um, you're not sponsored at all by Holden and they're actively against you um, uh, other than the engine job who helped me with the engines um, and that bit is, is not exactly right either because when I finally got to 93 I didn't have any money and I rang the Holden marketing guy up uh, I said mate look I just got to get some money and he gave me 50 grand he said don't tell anyone so <coughs> so I won't tell anyone I think you just told everyone <laughs> <laughs> um, so Holden did look after me for many many years I might add uh, and that, they were great but but we were always a, a rock solid privateer and we had to earn our money and uh yeah but then to go to 95 and win that last to first that's pretty hard to dismiss that in any way shape or form it was Without a doubt, the, the, the whole team, everyone had to perform uh, without a single glitch and every pit stop we ever did, every driver change, every lap was flat out. None of this, you know, just keep it coasting at nine tenths to get to the finish. We were flat out and uh, 
the machinery never failed at all. And um, if I remember, the 95 was also the year we made our own brake calipers. I think that's the, yeah, I think you're right, because uh, the, en- the endless stickers appeared on the okay, car. Okay, yeah, year. and we made our own brake calipers because AP in England, uh, Automotive Products, the largest brake company in the world, didn't reckon... Yeah, we could have a brake pad that fit thick because I wanted endless. The Japanese company they readily agreed to make me brake pads that were very thick, uh, so I could do the whole race without changing brake pads, and that was a big surprise to the uh, opposition when we never pitted for brake stop uh, brake pad change. And they changed the rules later on, didn't <laughs> they? <laughs> well, they changed <laughs> the, ru- the rules. What changed the ban the sh- holding engine I had. Yep. I, yeah, that's what's called peer pressure. They gang up on you and when you one vote uh, and there's 10 others. Uh, the rules got changed that you had to then change brake pads. Again, uh, sort of thought it a bit of free thinking of mine. Uh, the 97 one, uh, I think it was uh, because it was so uneventful. I don't remember a lot about that one other than we won, you know. That's the bit that matters. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the rest of them all uh, crashed or burned or couldn't keep <laughs> up. So that was a case. But you had this great era there in the 90s because there were the three mm. wins, which mm. are the, the, the Bannerhead things, mm. but you had a second, a third and a sixth in that little period of 93 to mm. 98 with obviously Greg at the start and then with Russell for the, mm. the run after. So you you defined yourself by what you did in October and everything you did, you've always said that led up to that and that was what it was all about. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. It's actually one of the questions that popped up in our um, from our fans if you've got six Bathurst trophies, would you ever trade just one, just one, for an Australian Touring Car Championship? That nah. said that you were the best guy all year, not just on no, one No, I wouldn't because I'd be, uh, it'd be deceitful because I never, ever tried to win the championship. Uh, I recall one, one year, I forget what year it was, that we were arguing as a bunch of Tiger owners or V8 Supergirl owners of – and I remember, yeah, we either didn't have enough cars or had too many cars. I said, well, I'll stand out. I remember you did this for I stand, Perth. I it was stood one of the, out. The, the Perth, it was when the, the field yeah. size was yeah. limited because of the grid. There was more cars and the whole pre-qualifying Whatever, I, I stood out yeah. uh, to, to stop the argument about who's going to stand. I said, well, I'll stand out. Like, uh, I mean, that, that I suppose, you know, I, I weren't starting from a clean piece of, piece of paper saying, I want to win the championship. I would have liked to have if that had worked out, but I remember Russell Ingle saying at one stage, he said, look, uh, I'm coming second in the championship, and I said, what are you? What, what's, yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised that the, you, someone was tracking where you were coming. I, it was just not on my radar, and I don't mean that sort of to disrespect anyone else who's wanted to win it. It just wasn't my personal focus. Mm. One of the things that we get asked about regularly, which is a common uh, – there's a common list of things that Larry related that pop up in our world through V8 Sleuth, the Castrol Cougar program, the, the all-girl team in 97, 98. If you did that now, you could not call it the Cougars. There's no way you would get that through uh, these days. How did that come to be? Was that that was a, a Castrol marketing mission that you accepted, and, and and in the end, it was it was a success because it probably, I mean, people still talk about it to this day, and it probably attracted a lot of women to the sport who otherwise might not have been. 
Yes, it was total uh, Castro initiated, and they said, you know, can you run, we'll run women. I said, well, it doesn't worry me. It's not, no skin off my nose, you know, but someone's got to pay the bill, and so it was part of the commercial side of it. And uh, you said it was success. I, I would beg to differ. Uh, I recall, um, you know, we, we tested lots and lots of uh, female drivers, and we just could not find any that, would rise, you know, to a level that I would have thought was a competitive, and um, that's just the way it was. I would have loved to have seen competitive women drivers, like this competitive men drivers, but it just wasn't happening. Now I don't know why that wasn't happening, but it wasn't. That's just the facts. Uh, they weren't deficient in in machinery. Uh, we looked, you know, high and low for uh, talented female drivers they they had an easy path by comparison to the guys they they didn't have to bring money or anything they just had to be a woman like mm. not that hard um but they they just didn't rise to the level that i felt uh, um you know they weren't going to mix it with the guys i re- recall you know, uh, the odd times, oh, we did pretty good, we finished 11th. I said, well, what do you mean finished 11th? Like, I finished first, Russell finished second or whatever. Mm. Uh, yeah, the, you know, I, I, there's only one winner. you got to aim to be the winner. And, uh, you know, second is not an option, you know. True, hard, hard man. <laughs> but look, it was a- From a marketing perspective, but the fact is, uh, when I say about the success of it, the fact that, X years on, it was 1997, mm. so we're 23 mm, years on, mm, mm. and still fans remember it well. Mm. So the, the the brand and the the memories of it happening are certainly still with people, rather than it disappearing well, into the annals of time. Melinda Price uh, and Karen Brewer, they were our lead uh, girls, and they, they, they were great. Uh, Melinda, especially in her earlier days of. I believe she was extremely competitive in the go karts against the guys, and that's when you know much earlier. Um, but for some reason, they have didn't go on with it, and that's not just Melinda, but others. That yeah, you know, when they're uh, um, you know in their young uh, teenage years, they're just as competitive, but that it drops off, and I don't know why. I don't know whether it's personal disinterest or or what, but. We didn't find a good female driver. Well, the which, one races. Which, which the, yeah, the, mm. and that's. I re, I wish we could have because mm. uh, the whole world of motorsport uh, from Formula One. Uh, I remember back with Bernie Eccleston, he would have he would have done anything to find women drivers that were competitive. But he just couldn't, and uh, there was none around. So um, I, I'm em- emphasising this a lot because I don't want to get any flack uh, that you know no one wants to look after women. We all would love to have women drivers if they were competitive. So if you're a competitive lady out there, I urge you. I wish you you know get on and do it because we need you. They're there. They're there. <laughs> we'll get one there for sure one day. Yeah, one day. I mean, they're competitive in other fields. I don't see why they're not competitive in car racing, but it hasn't yet materialised. Couch Racer Questions presented by the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama, where some of your fine work has been over the years. I've got a list of questions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to race on through them. We'll see how we go. Uh, David Blackus asks about the green and gold helmet livery. It's iconic. It's you. It's LP. What's the story behind the design? I'm sure you've told this one a couple of times, but there's probably plenty of people who, who haven't heard why you had a green and gold helmet. Is it Australian? Is, is it as simple as that? When I went to Europe... Uh 
and don't forget, I was only ever going to race open wheelers. Uh, I always felt that uh, I used to look at uh, Formula One in the 60s. I remember looking at uh, Graham Hill. He had his um, school. The rowing club. Rowing wasn't club it? or yeah, whatever it was. And, yep. and, and you could clearly see a driver then and there wasn't, uh, you could see the, the head of the driver, I should say. I wanted to be able to identify, I wanted to identify myself um, by my helmet. And uh, I very much was... Uh, uh, one of the green and gold of Australian colours because I remember the Jack Brabham, uh, uh, you know, the Repco green and gold. Uh, mm. That that was what inspired me. The uh, and I wanted to uh, uh, be very visual. And to be very visual, you can't have a messy design. You've got to have a design that you can see from the side and the front. And hence, uh, you know, I'm not like modern drivers today. Like the, the I just can't pick out one driver from the other today because of the helmet because they've got so much rubbish on it, it looks like a graffiti wall. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's the reason of the design, yeah. I, I didn't have the green and gold in the Brock days. Because no, you didn't. They were sooking and moaning, shocking that green and gold didn't go with their red and white Marlborough, and so I sort of compromised. So you had to run a white and red? Well, I, I wouldn't go all the way. They wanted just... Yeah, they weren't into the helmet being a connection to the driver. So I was ahead of the curve on them guys. Then. Which is very different open wheeler because it's Correct. visible and it's very much Correct. your ID. Yeah, you know, yeah. At tin top, it's a bit harder to see. Yeah. Mark Simpson asked a question, how healthy do you really think the current supercars format is? I, I guess Mark's talking about the, the business of, of supercars at the moment. Well, I, I'm no longer uh, see the books, so I, I don't know, but the health of it from a layman point of view is how many people want to go and watch it whether it be at the track or on tv and uh i I, i'm not sure whether that's a declining market or an expanding market i probably would urge uh, and suggest that it's not actually expanding at the rate they would like um there's the uh, foxtel issue which i know is 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 a sore issue to many people who don't have foxtel and can't watch it and um you know they've got to whether that whether they can weather that storm um or not uh, i mean foxtel's too expensive that's the reality and uh, i'd li- i'd like them to be urging um, foxtel if they want to take the big check off foxtel again well foxtel better start giving back to the fans and make it bloody so cheaper to watch the race uh the the competitiveness of the um uh, they've lost me a bit with this um um you know trying to make the makes exactly the same with each other and when you when you take away a lot of freedoms that a reasonable team should be able to adjust themselves to make it a rule where you're all the same it limits then the competitiveness and so you can't engineer your own thing and uh, I even believe that you've got a limit on tyre pressures now. I mean, to me, that's just absurd that, uh, um, you know, they're going to limit your tyre pressures. So they had to save teams from themselves from running them way too low to dangerous levels. Well, let the teams, they'll get sick of crashing after a while. Mm. Let them crash. I saw a few of those crashes with the tyre falling off the rim. Well, you know, the smart teams wouldn't have gone that low. So it's self-levelling, and I think you've got to let it, you got to sometimes let the teams sort it out themselves, and 
you know, there's too, there's, uh, too many control items at the moment and, and some of the control items are well thought out but some certainly aren't. I'll never um, uh, uh, understand why they put the gearbox in the boot. I have no idea what that was all about. Uh, it, 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 and, and the same people that put it there argued that, you know, we, we want to attract new manufacturers and they want their own DNA. Well, it's not much DNA in that. Um, the introduction of the Mustang that doesn't look like a Mustang to me is just weird. So uh, there's certainly a few things I'm against, uh, or, or I, I should say I, I, I wouldn't agree with and probably wouldn't have voted that way, but at the end of the day, it's what it is, and um, what, the bit that is good is it's a very competitive field of drivers. There's no doubt about that, and the, in this era now, if, you, if you're a competitive driver uh, and you can get a bit of the good machinery, it's, a, it's an easier path than it ever used to be. Mm. Gary Herbert, this is a big question. This is probably the deepest, biggest question you'll be asked in this podcast. Crogies. VB or Carlton Draft? <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not very much of a big beer drinker. Look, you what's, your, what's, your, what's, your, what's your fancy? If we were sitting down having a, a quiet drink, what would you go for? Well, uh, if it's hot, I'll have a, a beer, and I don't mind the Carlton Draft at all, but uh, I don't have too many beers, and to be honest, if I'm... Sitting down, I'd prefer to have a glass have of a wine. Yeah, <laughs> have yeah. a glass of wine. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. fair yeah. call. Uh, Howard Middleton, how many tractors do you own and have you ever done a tractor pull? <laughs> no, never done a tractor pull. Oh, I reckon there's a figure <laughs> we could get onto. Um, Come on. No, never. has got your name written all over it. Look, I grew up on tractors up on the Mallee farm up there, and uh, but only old tractors, you know. The, uh, but no, uh, not not too uh, fussed about that. They're they're just other things I do, and um, I keep my interest going on them. Currently, I've got Land Rovers in bits from the farm. I've got my Caterpillar RD fours in bits from the farm. Uh, they're in, all going back together, and uh, and Jack, my son, says, "Yeah, yeah, like when, you know." <laughs> um, so, but, but no, we get it. We, we uh, you know, I like all that stuff. It's you mm. know, as I say, I've got a, a factory uh, in Sunshine with all lots of things in it, and I like working on that. Yeah, yeah, you got plenty going on. There's no doubt about you being bored and sitting around with nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Uh, Elliot Beaton asks, what was the biggest struggle in getting the Group A Holden engine to rev so high to make its power? You talked about 8,500 revs early on. What was the biggest struggle to get it to do that? Well, the biggest struggle is with those rules, you had to use the um, standard components. And standard components are designed to go to about 4,000 revs. So you immediately around go... Around the street, not around the Around the street. So you immediately got a problem. Uh, the, the strength of the Conrods was an issue. Uh, the uh, strength of the cylinder block was an issue and, and we addressed those. Um, by the time we got to 93, uh, the rules were allowing those areas to be addressed and hence I used them to the fullest and uh, made very good cylinder heads uh, with the addition of cast iron where it wasn't 
through the great assistance of the engine Holden Engine Company, um, uh, and and strengthened the block enormously. And then we brought the seven thousand five hundred rev rule in as well. So you had then a bulletproof cylinder block and a head that you could get enormous power out of by raising the port twenty five mil. Um, um, and then all those mods, you had a dead reliable machine. That there's no weak link in it. You proved that a fair few times. Uh, Matthew Davis asks, any plans to obtain or restore any other Perkins Motorsport touring cars? So when the 93 one's done, you've done 2003, is there anything else out there that you'd like to maybe grab next? Well, that part of the business um, my son Jack runs at, I don't uh, daily get involved in it. I, I help him out randomly. Um uh, so what he's plans after after these two, I don't know. It's it's not our intention to have a production line of restoring old cars. We flog them. Uh, they're both unique to me and unique to our business, meaning our first Bathurst win and then my last Bathurst race car. So uh, I'm hoping uh, they'll hang around for a long time in our stable. Uh, but what happens after that, I, I, I won't be doing too much to help that uh, but jack will be blame jack is probably <laughs> the answer to that one next one from john o'barry uh, is it true or was it true i should say that you weren't allowed to beat brock in the mobile cars in 1991 that was in the contract was it not that you weren't allowed to beat him i don't know how he knows that but that's absolutely true it was written into the contract that i must always finish behind brock and i must admit uh, again, I said everything I did was for commercial reasons and it was a good contract and I I had to sign it with that in there and that's why you'll notice the only race I ever beat him was the last race at Adelaide. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's true and uh, uh, it was all, always disappointed me and my wife that he chose to put that in. That's a shame. That's a shame. So Peter did that or did his management perhaps do that? Well, I have no idea who put it in, but uh, um, it, it come from his corner. <laughs> mm. understand. Uh, Carl Phillips, how's your relationship with Jamie Winkup and why did you feel that way back in the day? Now, I think he's referring to that Jamie we spoke to on the podcast last year and I think he made a comment and alluded to and some other fans have that perhaps you, you didn't rate him back in the era when he, he drove for your team with – um, in the Enduros with Alex Davison for 2004. Uh, is, is that the case? Was there ever a, a fact that you, you didn't rate him or you didn't rate his work that year? Or that, What's your side of the story on the Wing Cup and Perkins? Yes, I remember uh, those two. Um, uh, for some reason, I, I, I don't remember why we weren't competitive. And for sure, um, the easy thing is, you know, the drivers aren't winning, so you blame the drivers. Now... Um, I, I don't I don't know why we weren't able to give a Jamie a car that he could win on because uh, I think it must have been the same as when he I've read when he was with Gary Rogers he wasn't winning races as well um, but uh, only a, only a fool would suggest Jamie can't drive and I mean I I was the most delighted of anyone to see Jamie go on and win 
God, how many championships? He's up to seven now. Seven or eight yeah. championships. And when I watch him drive around and I've all, all those years he's driven around, I don't think I've ever seen him make a mistake. And if it is, it's, it's so rare. And, and, uh, so I, I'm, I'm perplexed why we weren't able to give him a car that he could show his skills in because he clearly has all the skills. Uh, and, but we weren't able to, extract that out of him with our machinery and that's the bit that I just don't understand how we we couldn't do it and it's, it's almost it disappoints me as a team because here we had one of the best drivers Australia's ever going to have and and we had him in our seat and we couldn't give him a car that he was able to win races in so that is a is a regret uh, I suppose that I I've got that we just couldn't get him to win races He's won plenty since then, though. He's been okay. He's done very well, and I'm a great admirer of him uh, in his, uh, uh, you know, in his, uh, his driving skills. He's fantastic. You know, he just doesn't make mistakes. And and I see also that he's coming to the end of what uh, I gather that he may retire, be retiring soon. There's been a I'm little gathering. bit of chat yeah, that I'm, he's I'm reading that. out of contract. And you remember he's a part – well, this is actually an interesting discussion that we should have. We'll preface this off the back of the, mm-hmm. the Couch Racer questions. He's in his late 30s, not mega late 30s, but not far off it. He's bought a shareholding now in the Triple Eight team with Roland Dane and, and some other partners. It's a very different era now to when you mm. almost have make your own decision or get tapped on the shoulder by the team or by the pressure that goes on in the media and social media and the fan base and, and things like that. What would your advice be to someone like him in that situation where he is closer to the end than the start, let's be frank, how close he is, that's debatable and probably only he and his team can really accurately answer that. Well, from, the, it, from the approach of someone who's at that stage of their career, what's your what's your take on how they should approach it? And is it is it about just having the absolute courage to be honest with yourself? To if you're not, as you said, at Bathurst 03 when you put in the fence, mm. if you're no longer the best man for the seat, then you should step down. Oh, that's the way I'd look at it. And I, I I remember saying to Craig Lowndes a couple of years ago when I was on a Daryl Beatty trip. Um, I said, Jesus, Lounsey, I won three more Bathursts after I was 40 years old. Like, you know, but only you know whether you've, you know, still got it or not. And, uh, you know, you're the only guy that knows your real enthusiasm and, and, and you're the only guy who knows when you're making mistakes. And when you make one, maybe you can forgive yourself. But when you make maybe two, uh, you've got to say, maybe it's time I hung the hat up and, uh, uh, you know, most drivers, uh, a lot of drivers hang it up and then come back again, which is, I find it very weird. Uh, but that's, every, everyone's an individual and they do what they want. So, so Jamie, you hang in there as long as you like. And I always see a lot more cars behind you than in front of you. So, uh, there's a <laughs> message there somewhere. Is your view better for a sports person to squeeze everything out? And have nothing left at the end, or to finish with a bit left in the tank. Uh, well, it's 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 the risk factor of uh, if you know your machinery and you know your own skills, you will run every lap as fast as you can, if the machinery is designed to take it. And that, but with current racing, and I'm mostly talking Bathurst, with pit stops and all that. There's that many pit stops and pit lane penalties and it sort of would drive you mad and I can see why you may want to exit the whole field a bit sooner because it's sort of 
you know, some of the penalties of just, I thought we'd get onto this too. Oh, it just drives me nuts. So this, you know, uh, um, where you're being interfered with by others who have never raced in their life, and you think, Christ Almighty, there's something weird about this. this and, and, and it would sap your enthusiasm, I'm sure, and, uh, you know, anything else would be better to do. So you, you think, though, for an athlete, you're better off to not hang on too long, too long, and the star fades, or that you should just... Pull up a little bit before you'd go off the cliff so everyone can know. know that on your day you still had it. No, definitely, you on top. definitely, definitely don't. The moment you're not pulling the last tenth where you used to or knew you could get out of it, mate, you've had your day over. Let someone else have a go. I'm sure there's a pile of people <laughs> lining up to take the seat in yeah. that Red Bull uh, HRT yeah. Commodore. We're going to finish off with a top 10 shootout. This is the V8 Salute Top 10 shootout. Uh-huh. So basically, it's a fancy form of word association. Oh, my God. So the first word that comes into your head with a list of 10 people, places, things. Some of them we've t- touched on. Some of them we haven't. You, you, I'll, okay. I'll let you have two or three words. Yeah. Uh-huh. But by the end, you'll get down to one. That's what everybody seems to do. Le Mans. What's the word that springs to mind when I say Le Mans? Oh, sorry, Le Mans. Yeah, Le Mans. Um, um, and don't say French. That's no, 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 no. Um, oh, Unbelievable high speed. Hyphenated, that's one word, I reckon. What, 400 Ks in a jag on slicks in the wet? Probably the silliest thing you've no ever done. No chicanes then. No. I drove the last year before they put chicanes in. All my Le Mans have been with the other chicane. Real Le Mans. Yeah, the real Le Mans. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you never went back after that jag. I think that was probably enough for you to. Well, that was my third uh, trip there. And, well, everyone uh, forgets your first one, though. I don't think you've ever talked about it. You, everyone knows the one you did with Brock. Uh, uh, everyone knows the jag. Uh, but the first one was in the mid seventies in a Porsche that 70, no one really ever talked about. Seventy-seven. They called it an IMSA Porsche. It was um, it was a whatever it was. It was a class car. It wasn't an outright car, mm. and we come second in our class there. Yeah. Yeah, everyone forgets that, that you did three Le Mans, not two. (laughs) Uh, Next one on the top ten shootout list, Denny Holm. Denny Holm. Oh, I'm going to say more than two words on Denny Holm. Yeah, fair call, fair call. Denny Holm, one of the most fantastic blokes I've ever met and uh, world champion in Formula One. I met him, I'm scratching around in the Monaco paddock in 1973 where I've just been fastest in practice, you know, Uh, and uh, um, this bloke, walks up you know, a mile from the Formula 1 pit, he's walked up to the Formula 3 pit and it was Denny Holm. And he's walked up, he said, oh, I'm just looking for you, I wanted to introduce myself. And he said, hey, if I can ever help you, whatever, I'm here to help you. Yeah. And this was from a guy who was only a couple of years earlier, was Formula 1 world champion. Mm. He was still running in the 73 Formula 1 race at Monaco. I hope I've got that right. I'm sure I have. And he saw fit to um, come up and introduce himself to, uh, uh, you know, Aussies and uh, Kiwis are the same. Once you're overseas, we consider everyone, can, you know, you're the same. And he just wanted to uh, extend a hand and uh, it was just fantastic, a moment I've never forgotten. And uh, and then I went on to have a great relationship with him here in Australia and in, in touring cars and uh, truly a wonderful bloke. Mm. The bear, as they called him. Yeah. Uh, we talked about him before, Greg Hansford. It's hard to summar- summarise all these people up or things in one word, but... Oh, a great loss. Mm. Yeah. Great loss. Uh, 
a great loss because the guy who um, had no ego and he's only uh, all he just his he he demonstrated what he was good at on the track, whether it was on bikes or uh, or in the cars, and never 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 said a bad word about anyone. Just you just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. Mm. And uh, yeah, re- re- tremendous bloke, and a and a, and a ter- you know, great loss. Mm. The polarizer. God, <laughs> there you go. There's your word. <laughs> God give me strength. Yeah. <laughs> it's more than one word. Uh, Bernie Eccleston. A doer. A doer. He, yeah, made, he made it happen. True. Bernie made things happen. Uh, what's next on my list? Russell Ingle. Ah, uh, Russell Ingle. <laughs> um, one for me. <laughs> one for you, one for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> King of Contra, uh, <laughs> Wheeler and Dealer. Uh, one for you, one for me. Sounds good. Uh, John Harvey, former HDT teammate of yours from back in the day. Um, he's a decent bloke. Hmm. Uh, nothing was a fuss for him, you know. Uh, a, bit, a bit like uh, personnel, a bit like Greg Hansford, you know, not unassuming. You just, what do you want me to do? Fuss free. That's a, probably fuss-free. Yeah, fuss-free, yeah. yeah. No, no stress. Here's a good one for you. Tom Walkinshaw. Oh, Tom's a difficult one. Um, what can I say about Tom Walkinshaw? Well, well, yeah, you only need to find one word. I you only know, need to find Christ. one word. Um, I can't, I'm struggling to think of a single word for Tom. Um, or maybe more than a couple. Yeah, Go with a couple of words. Uh, make it easier. He was certainly a rule exploiter. <laughs> there we go. We got there eventually. Cow <laughs> uh, Angie. What's the word that springs to mind? <laughs> I'll, I'll relax the one word rule for yeah, you. Yeah, Cow Angie. My old hometown. Hmm. <laughs> Straightforward and simple as that. Uh, and one more to finish off with. I reckon you had a few run-ins with this bloke over the years, but some damn good races too. Uh, Mark Scaife. Yes, I had some good races with Mark. Oh, I'm, I'm on the one word. On the I? one word, yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, worthy opposition. You always knew you were in a fight when you are up against oh, yeah, him. Yeah, worthy opposition, that'll do. Yep. That was probably the hardest top ten shootout you've ever done in your whole <laughs> career, actually. But we got there in the end. Um, LP, there's so many things that we haven't got to today, but we have covered heaps of ground. Thank you mm. so much for your time. I'm sure at another point somewhere down the track we'll end up doing a part two somewhere. Mm. But there was one more question, actually, here on our mm. Couch Racer questions that I didn't get to. It's from a young bloke, uh, A. Noonan from Melbourne in Victoria, and he asks, Larry, would you like to write a book one day? No. Would you like someone to write a book on you one no. day? That's not good. That's not good. <laughs> I thought I might slip that one in one day. <laughs> All right. Everyone who's listening, if you want Larry or a book on Larry to be done, go nuts, send emails, <laughs> send messages, show him how much that you think that this is a good thing and we'll make it happen. I will twist his arm until it snaps because <laughs> he's got one other good arm. He doesn't need two. So, uh I thought we might slip that in. I thought we might get a maybe, but we got a no. That's all right. I'll keep working away on it. LP, 
In the meantime, thank you so much for sitting down with us and I will work on you for part two in that book. Thank you very much. So there you go. Thank you again to Larry Perkins for joining us on the VA2 podcast powered by Timkin. And I promise you, we will keep working on him about doing that book. We do have a book coming out, though, that has a fair bit of LP in it already. Racing the Lion is a 400-page illustrated history of Holden in Australian motorsport. It's our dip of the cap to the general, and it's rich history in the sport, and it's available for pre-order right now. To get your copy, jump on our website, v8sleuth.com.au, click on the store link, and you can guarantee you'll get a copy of this limited edition release when it comes out later this year. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, that's great. Make sure to leave us a review to help spread the word. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. You'll be notified as each one comes out. There's even more of them this year than ever before, as we'll be releasing an episode every week during the 2020 supercar season. If you haven't been to our website recently too, jump online. It's had a birthday and a fresh coat of paint. Check it out at v8sleuth.com.au. And as always, follow us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and stay up to date with us there. Until then, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.